0: Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, the CEO of apic UC. and in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, I'm going to be talking to Cal Newport, who is an assistant professor at George Washington University, but he's also the best-selling author of Deep Work and So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is based on a quote from the comedian Steve Martin. I love that. He's also going to be a keynoter at APQC's 2017 Knowledge Management Conference. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to say hi, Cal.
1: Hi, Carla.
0: And get into some of the questions, because this whole concept of deep work, maybe you unfamiliar to people. I mean, we all kind of know what the words deep mean and work means, but what is deep work and why should knowledge workers care?
1: Well, deep work is my term for the activity where you're, Focusing without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. And my main argument is that deep work as a skill is becoming increasingly valuable in our knowledge economy at exactly the same time that it's becoming increasingly rare. So the small number of individuals or small number of organizations who actually try to cultivate this skill are going to have a large competitive advantage.
0: That makes sense. And that so the it, it matters not just to the individuals, but it also matters to the organizations they work with.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that the skill could be a huge differentiator because an organization that prioritizes deep work as a tier one skill that they're trying to support and increase is going to produce more value and have more productive employees.
0: Well, why is it so productive um, for organizations? Why is deep work productive? Why do you think it's so important?
1: Well, there's two things I found that deep work really strongly supports or connects to. Uh, the first is intense concentration is what is required to learn complicated things quickly. So if you're adept at concentrating, intense, without distraction, you can pick up complicated skills on the fly, which is increasingly important in an increasingly competitive and complicated knowledge economy. The second advantage seems to be when you're working in a state of unbroken concentration, you're producing work at both a much higher rate and quality. So someone who's working with unbroken, intense concentration is just going to be far outproducing someone who's maybe working on the same type of path, but is more fragmented or her attention, glancing at a phone, glancing at an email inbox. I like the terminology that uh, the economists use. They said, well, it's like the killer app of a knowledge economy. And sometimes when you study people who are really using the skill and see the huge gains they're getting, it does feel like that.
0: Those are the people who don't live in email and respond the instant that an email comes in, right? I mean, they're probably off doing something, thinking about something, or working on something. I've, it reminds me of uh, right now there's this, uh, in the oil and gas business, they call it the big crew change, where the huge retirement of the most expert people they have, who uh, the baby boomers, who over the last 20 or 30 years learned by experience, and we'll, we'll take engineers and seismic you know, geologists and chemists, et cetera. And they're all in the process of retiring. And these are very complex um, uh, domains of knowledge which require a huge amount of learning. Uh, I just wonder how that might have, if I were a person just entering, had been just hired by one of the oil and gas companies, um, what, what advice would you give me? Well,
1: I would, if I was a CEO of one of these oil and gas companies, I'd be worried about this too. Because if you're bringing in a, a new generation of workers who, due to new technologies, are more fragmented their intention than anyone else who's come before, I would worry, is this new generation going to be able to pick up on the complex skills and systems and ideas that are necessary to keep this complex industry going? Because we know it's unbroken concentration that helps you pick things up quickly. So if I was running one of these companies, this would be at the top of my list of new employee training, (laughs) at the top of the the meeting agenda every time I met with the head of HR or my CEO was how can we inculcate in our employees a respect for the ability to concentrate? How do we build a culture that is going to allow people to put aside time to concentrate intensely? how can we help people train and develop that? So the sort of general answer here would be this is exactly the type of knowledge work case study in which you see skills like deep work are becoming suddenly much more important.
0: On a, on a tiny scale, you see that at some companies you will declare an email free Friday except for customers or something that, uh, you know, or a, a, a meeting free Wednesday so that people have some time to, uh, to work and to think on things. But that brings me to the other issue. A lot of what we do in organizations, uh, Let's leave social media aside for a second. A lot of what we do is we hold meetings and we talk to each other and we co-design things and nothing ever happens or made it to market by one person, at least not anything big really. Uh, Maybe the Yeti Cup. I'm not sure. No, they still had to have manufacturing. But anyway, I digress. So what do you see as kind of the, I think of deep work as solitary. Am I wrong about that? And if, if it is sort of solitary, how does that mesh with the need to collaborate?
1: Modern collaboration, I think, is a a core issue right now in the knowledge economy in which deep work plays an important role. So if you actually study collaboration and what it requires, you see there tends to be two steps to it. There's the step where information is exchanged, ideas are generated, serendipity is courted. This is often where, hey, we can build a yeti cup. (laughs) where that idea actually comes from. Uh, the, the inspiration piece of Edison's quote. And then you have the perspiration piece where ideas are thought about carefully, they're developed, the implications are thought through, the actual deep work is done. Both of these pieces are important and they both, I think, need to be protected. So I think a great model for it is the great innovation factories we saw in the early 20th century, like Bell Labs' Murray Hill campus or MIT's Building 20. These were places that were famous for collaboratively producing cross-disciplinary, world-changing innovations. But if you go back and actually study how they ran these organizations, you saw they really depended on what I call a hub-and-spoke architecture. So you had spokes, which in the case of, say, Bell Labs was just quiet, soundproof offices in which you could sit with your whiteboard and, and work through the implications of something hard or think about something hard. And then you had hubs where all these spokes were connected to. So at the Bell Labs campus, they put all the departments in one big building that shared one massive hallway so that you had structured periods of interaction where serendipity could be courted, ideas could be had, things could be bounced around. And so you go back and forth. You have structured periods for I'm talking, I'm planning, I'm thinking, I'm brainstorming. And then you have structured periods for let's take the result of that and do the deep thinking needed to transform a spark into an actual fire And something I'm worried about now in our economy is that we put too much emphasis, especially in modern tech companies, on just the spark inspiration part. And and that's all that's emphasized. Let's have a giant open office where at all points all people can constantly run into each other and talk to each other and share ideas. And if you don't have both parts, you don't have the hub and the spoke, you're not going to get the same result. So, I mean, I think we need a more nuanced conversation about the role of collaboration and producing big ideas, bringing complicated things to market or having innovation.
0: Yeah, and it, whether that's a virtual hub and spoke uh, you know, uh, or a physical one, if you happen to be lucky enough to be co-located, I, I couldn't agree with you more.
1: Because you see a lot of this now where maybe it's a spread out company, you put everyone on a Slack or a related instant messenger channel. And say, just, let's just let this chat go all day. It's an open party line. Everyone's on it. You need to be a part of it. We're going to think, ironically, that you're slacking if you're not using Slack. And it creates a virtual culture in which it's all just the the collaboration, the communication, the serendipity. So it's very easy to fall into that trap of just doing the one side, whether you're in a classical building or you're spread out around the world.
0: Yeah. One of the things that an inbox gives you that – for good or for ill, that you don't get on Slack, is that an inbox, you get that little shot of dopamine every time you empty an email. And I'm not sure you get that on Slack every time you respond. That's the bad part. That's why email, cleaning out your inbox can uh, give you the illusion that you're actually working.
1: Yeah, there's definitely some interesting psychology going on. There's the dopamine hit that attracts you to an inbox, and then Slack can play off of our social wiring of our brain the notion that there might be someone on this channel waiting for me to respond that's something that can also be incredibly distracting our brains are wired to not ignore people so it's very hard to keep your attention away from that
0: you've made a conscious decision not to be on social media you want to talk about that
1: yeah I've never had a social media account and to the surprise of my students for example it turns out I'm okay <laughs> uh, I still have friends I still know what's going on in the world um, I'm still able to collaborate broadly with academics and find markets and sell my book uh, so life can go on without social media but what I the bigger point I like to make about social media is that I don't think it should be given a free pass in our culture in terms of well it's just something everyone has to use and let's just leave it at that I think we should have more critical thinking about who uses it and who does it in other words what I want people to do is to step back and say let me really think carefully about the benefits I would get out of different social media services in my particular professional setting and in my particular personal life setting. And let me think honestly about the cost. We often downplay, for example, the cost of attention fragmentation that the major services generate like Twitter or Facebook, where they're actually being engineered to be as addictive as possible. That's the business plan of Facebook and Twitter is how can we keep as much attention as possible The average Facebook user we now know from Facebook's last quarterly filing will spend over an hour a day uh, on their suite of applications. That's a lot of time that could be spent on other things. But the cost is real. So I want people to be more critical in doing that cost-benefit analysis. And I think if people really did, you'd have plenty of people who still use social media and you would have a lot more people who didn't. And that's probably the more healthy balance, in my opinion, for, for this technology's role in our society as opposed to where it seems to be now, which is just it's a ubiquity that's not questioned.
0: I think that's a great exercise for individuals and for uh, people who are knowledge management professionals to think through with their team, which is what exactly is the balance that we want to promote in our organization, and can we be conscious, explicit, and uh, eloquent with people about that? Uh, I think it would make a huge difference. That people often complain they don't know which application am I supposed to use for what. You know that itself is a, a time suck. But I yeah, think yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'd be something we could do. What else could we do? I mean, you have you have four rules of deep work that I think apply to individuals and to groups. Could you talk to us just a little bit about that? I know you're going to talk more about it at the conference, but just kind of run through those for our listeners.
1: Sure. I'll give you the high-level summary of them, and then we can, we can of course, dive in if, if any sound particularly interesting. But I have these four rules that are about what do you do if you decide that you do want to make deep work a more important part of your professional life? So there's four general types of things that happen. Uh, the first rule I call work deeply, and it's about how do you actually set up your professional life so that deep work will succeed that you have a regular chance to do it and you'll be more successful in these endeavors. And that's where you learn, for example, about scheduling deep work on your calendar in advance, having rituals surrounding the sessions to help your mind switch into that mindset uh, and these type of related instructions. The second rule uh, I call embrace boredom. And this is really about cognitive fitness. So deep work is cognitively demanding. And if you train your mind, to be prepared for deep work and well-suited for deep work, you will get a lot more out of sessions of intense concentration than if you don't. So in Embrace Boredom, I talk a lot about how do you prepare your mind to do intense concentration in much the same way if you wanted to do some sort of intense athletic activity. Like run a triathlon, you would want to know, well, what, what should I be eating? What sort of exercising should I be doing? What sort of training should I be doing? That's as important for deep work as it is for athletic activity. So that's where we talk a lot about, for example, breaking an addiction you might have to getting a quick hit of distraction every time you're bored, building more comfort with boredom, doing some exercises with your brain to, to push further and further how comfortable it is, concentrating how deeply it can concentrate. The third rule was quit social media, which, of course, is a, a, a provocative pilot, Because If you dive a little bit quicker, actually what it turns out, where that title comes from is a suggestion that you take a 30-day break quitting your social media services, just to get a sense of which of these is actually bringing value to my life and which of these am I not actually missing. But the broader message of that rule is what we were just talking about. You need to do as a knowledge worker, much more critical cost benefit analysis of any tool in your life that can lay claim to your time and attention. Your brain is your tool. And so you need to be careful about what you allow to have access to your brain. So it's a lot about how do I do that cost-benefit analysis in a realistic way? And the final rule I suggest for people interested in deep work I call drain the shallows, and this is about making sure you take off your plate unnecessary busy work, stuff that is going to eat up your time and not leave you enough left over to do the deep, concentrated stuff that produces real value, And then to take the busy type of work or non-deep work to remain to be much more efficient or intentional and mindful about it so that you keep it tamed. So that your day doesn't just spiral into handling the non-deep and and preventing you from actually doing the sort of deep thinking that creates the new thing, the next big idea, the the new skill, the things that are actually going to to push your career forward. Because as I like to say, it's the non-deep work that maybe keeps you from getting fired, but it's the deep work that gets you promoted. It's the stuff that really matters.
0: Yeah, and if what you're trying to do is is promote results in your organization and you're in a KM role, this is a chance to make a difference, a really big difference in people, the quality of people's lives. And just a couple of thoughts on those. You know I'm a big fan, but one of them on embracing boredom and the practice around that, I think that is really important. You know, you can strengthen your willpower muscle. You can strengthen your ability to withstand tedium. Um, That's called meditation and mindfulness. You know, and I don't think it's an accident at all that the last five years, you know, mindfulness is having a moment in the human psyche, uh, certainly the American psyche, because of its uh, the tremendous cost we pay for the distraction in our lives.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I, I think in an era where most labor was physical, for example, we cared a lot about health and fitness, and I think now that we're in an era. Where an increasing amount of our work is cognitive in nature, it makes sense that we really start to think and worry about cognitive health and fitness. And that's why you see things like mindfulness on the rise in America. Just like you would have seen jogging and weight equipment becoming a big deal at an earlier time, is people realize my brain is how I make a living, and there's good ways to use it and bad ways to use it. I really need to start paying attention to what I'm doing with this really valuable tool.
0: Plus, it's how you live your life. The other life is just a substitute, <laughs> you know. The digital life is not the real life. Uh, you are going to have a lot more time to talk about this at the conference. You've got great stories, I know, from your book, Deep Work, that you can share with folks. And, of course, the first book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, was really foundational to your thinking about deep work. So we in the KM uh, space are looking forward to uh, the opportunity to dig even deeper, if you'll pardon the pun. Thanks, Cal.
1: Well, thank you, and I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity to to meet everyone and come to this conference and, and get get deeper into the weeds on these issues. It's fascinating stuff.